Uh, we're in God's Word in Matthew chapter 26 today, and we are, uh, to pick up the story, we have, uh, Jesus has been arrested. Jesus has been arrested, and now uh, comes the, the connection to all the charges that are going to be brought to, uh, on him and all the, the process of him going to the cross. Uh, Jesus uh, has been an amazing teacher, not uh, saying things that uh, they didn't understand and they couldn't comprehend, and now he has put them together before them. He has also healed people. He has shown his uh, power to heal. Uh, he has uh, cast out demons. He has uh, done that which they could not do and could not fathom, and he has shown himself uh, to be God. Uh, and uh, to be the Messiah that was to come. Uh, and yet, he's, uh, he's been arrested. He's been arrested by the religious leaders, the Jews. And uh, we, now find, uh, we now find the first of many trials. Uh, this is kind of a pre-trial or an informal trial, if you will, uh, that we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be starting in verse 57. Um, and... Uh, if you'd stand in honor of God's word, I'd like to read to you chapter 26, verse 57. God's word says this, uh, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and el elders had gathered. And Peter was following uh, him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, uh, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? Uh, what? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you uh, by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? Uh, you have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? God, we ask your blessing on your word. We ask you to speak to us now, uh, cause us to understand that we might obey. God, change our hearts, equip us for the weeks to come. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we look at this passage, um, it's coming to the end. It's coming to the end. We see it coming. We know 
uh, the story. Some of us know the story. We know how this all plays out, and this is one step along the way. Uh, and one way to look at this is the challenge of God, that Jesus was God come in the flesh. He was standing before them, and they were challenging God. If you look over to chapter 26, verse 1, uh, you see that first section there uh, in chapter 26, you realize that um, the disciples uh, were with Jesus. They were uh, going about doing what they were doing that week before. And then in verse 3, it says, Then the chief priests and elders and people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. This was just the working out of the plan, right? Uh, They had gathered before at Caiaphas' house. They had gathered before to draw up a plan uh, so that they could arrest Jesus. Why? So that they could kill Jesus. This was their desire, was to kill Jesus. Um, And now we come back to Caiaphas' house, um, and really this same group, uh, late at night, uh, they come back uh, in the same purpose, now having Jesus in custody. Verse 57 uh, says this, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, where the scribes and el- elders had gathered. Caiaphas, uh, actually Luke tells us that this is back at Caiaphas's house, and uh, maybe a, a large house with an entryway or a, a courtyard as uh, has been destri- described and uh, translated, but they're at Caiaphas's house, he, he being the high priest, and then uh, the others with him, probably uh, the 70, the Council of 70. Um, not, not necessarily all of them were there. This was late at night, but as many as they gathered, uh, the council was represented in a significant way at his house. Uh, for what purpose? Why do you get up in the middle of the night? Uh, because they finally had Jesus. They finally had him. And now was the time that they were going to uh, come and gather and figure out what to do with Jesus, how that they could kill him. In the same uh, group of verses, it talks of Peter. And, and remember Peter. Remember Peter. What was the conversation that Jesus had already had with Peter at that last supper that they had together? Uh, Thursday night, if you will. Uh, they, they said this, that one of you will disown me. And uh, Peter says, it, it might be all those other guys, but it will not be me. Uh, and Jesus says, in fact, uh, you, you know, you, you're going to deny me. And he says, no, no, no. I, even if I have to go to death with you, I will not deny you. Um, we realize that it says in the previous passage that when Jesus was arrested, the rest of the disciples scattered. There was a, a, a quiet failing in that. There was a, Peter, at a moment, he wanted to fight, but then when he saw he was arrested, they all scattered. And now Peter is back on the scene, it tells us in verse 58. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I'm glad this isn't like the Lions Club where every time you cough, you have to pay a, a fee or something. That's one way to raise money in the church this time of year. Uh, 
it says something of Peter, and Matthew's going to follow this whole idea of Peter throughout his book, coming back to him and this whole uh, connection that Jesus had with him and and his failure. And and Jesus said, I'll pray for you. I I pray for you that your faith will not fail. And I want to tell you something. We'll get back to Peter next week and probably the next couple of weeks. Um, When you think of Peter... Uh, you you might think of him as the failing uh, disciple, the one who kept stumbling, shooting his mouth off and then failing. But Jesus prayed for him that his faith would not fail. Think about that. His faith would not fail. That it's not that he wouldn't have failures along the way, but that ultimately that his life would be something of faith that he would be one who had trusted in Jesus. And, and I think we'll, next week we're going to talk about this, but it's so important that we remember that um, our, our, our life story is not a chronicle of awesomeness of us. It, it's not us in all the great things that we have accomplished and done. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a sense of stumbling and fumbling, it's it's times where we have failed. I, I know that uh, in my life, I look at different times and I go, that didn't look so good. That didn't look so good. Let's try to cover that up. Let's not throw those pictures away. You know, uh, get rid of the get rid of the history of it all. But I want to tell you, that's the mark of a believer. Not that we don't have failures, but that God has shown himself faithful over the long haul and that he we continue to follow him, even though, even though uh, we have a, a track record of failings in us. In this, it says Peter, uh, verse 58, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And then going inside, he sat uh, with the guards to see the end. Uh, what an amazing thing. Uh, it seems as though... Uh, Peter was putting it all together, all that he had heard, and he he said, I got to see how this plays out. I got to be there. And so he sat at a distance. He sat there as as one just wanting to see what was going on. It doesn't say anything about the other disciples where they were, but it says of Peter that he was there uh, wanting to see what is going on. We move now to the next section. Uh, verse 59, uh, where they are seeking false testimony. You think about this and uh, how awful this is. The, the picture here is not a, just a false testimony. They're seeking to frame the Messiah. They're seek, seeking to, and, and it shows this picture of them grabbing people and dragging them in and saying, uh, could you tell us some false testimony? Give, give me something bad that Jesus did. Well, he said this. You know, oh, that's good. That's good. You, 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 uh, you realize that this is late at night, and they're trying to drum up charges against him. Um, they, this whole council has uh, gotten together to seek this false testimony. And once again, why are they seeking this false testimony? To put him to death. To put him to death. Uh, what an amazing thing as we look at this in a, just a, taking a step back and the justice of this all. 
of all of this. You go, these are the religious leaders seeking out to target Jesus, the one who was this great healer, great teacher, man who hadn't been immoral in any way. They're seeking out Jesus to do what? To kill him. To kill him. It's just an amazing picture of what goes on. Um, they're seeking uh, false testimony, seeking to kill him. And, and not just seeking to kill him, but to justify killing him. Uh, what would justify? And, and realize this, it's kind of a complicated uh, political uh, time, but when Rome conquered a city, uh, most of the time they didn't just clean out the city and bring in their own uh, politics and structure. They allowed autonomy for the cities. So uh, Caiaphas had uh, power. Uh, Him being the high priest, he had uh, control and some jurisdiction even, that that idea. But Rome was over him, and that's where we'll get to. And so this is really the the Jewish pretrial, if I could say it that way. Uh, If you can picture that this is the Jews trying to get the charges in place so that they can... uh, Part of what that was was the Jews did not have authority uh, to kill somebody. Uh, they had to go to Rome for that. And so that was part of what was happening, how this was coming in place. I, I think what they were doing was they were reverse engineering their case against Jesus. They said, we want to end up with him dead. And so how can we take steps, work that back to the place? And they began with, we need to have uh, two witnesses that agree. For um, the Jews, two witnesses was a big deal. Even going back to the Old T- Testament, there was this idea that uh, to, to agree on a charge, two people had to agree that this really happened. They needed to have two witnesses. And so uh, as they were bringing these men in with these charges, they were trying to find two that agreed, and sometimes that's hard to do, and they were having a difficult time this night. As we continue, uh, we, we look at this and it's an amazing thing that the best they could do was they came with, uh, the, the big charge they came up with was Jesus saying, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Um. He did say this, or something similar to this, almost this. Um, and they agreed that he said that. But uh, this was not, uh, this was maybe a, a, a huge uh, idea that he probably couldn't come to fruition if he wasn't God. It's not a big deal. Look at the temple, and that just doesn't make sense that he could tear down uh, Herod's temple. And uh, But the idea of this being worthy of death um, is, is is quite amazing. Um, but this was the best they came up with, this idea that uh, he would be able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Jesus' response, it's important to hear this, that, or I say hear this, but his response was silence. He didn't answer. Um, it's interesting. Uh, how did that, how do you think, just knowing, even reading this, how did that uh, make the the religious leaders feel when he didn't respond? 
Boy, it fired them up. It bothered them. Yeah. Um, if, if you consider this, that uh, they had brought this huge charge in their mind against him, and they said, what, you know, what do you say? And he says, there was nothing to say. A couple of things I'd tell you there is that I think uh, to defend that which is true is hard sometimes. Not that Jesus couldn't have, but what do you say? You know, there's nothing to defend. Uh, the witnesses were already there. But more importantly, I, I would say this, that uh, the truth needs no defense. And his silence was purposeful to make the uneasy uh, religious leaders feel the weight of the, the guilt of what they were doing. They knew they were doing wrong. And so it sat with them and burned with them. If he would get in an argument with them, it would further uh, clarify that he was guilty and they could continue on with the charge. Boy, they could make a great episode of a, 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 a law show out of this, right? You know, going before the... I know some of you love those kind of shows and you like law and I'm sorry for you. I'm just sorry. I feel bad. I feel bad. May God have mercy on your sin-sick, shriveled-up souls. Um, anyways, back to the Scripture. You look down at verse 63, um, the follow-up question uh, for Jesus in frustration, in frustration. Uh, you look to the, they're going back back and forth amongst themselves and Jesus is silent. But uh, verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. And then the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He gets down to the most important, like this, the, the whole rebuilding of the temple. Push that aside. Let's go for the bigger thing. Son of God, are you the Christ, the Messiah? Are you the one? Are you, do, you, do you think that you are the one? Um, and his response, uh, he basically acknowledges it's close enough. You know, I, what Jesus and the high priest were struggling with is Jesus knew who he was and his definition and, and how he spoke of him being Messiah and the Son of God. He, he understood his relationship with the Father as being uh, this perfect part of the Trinity, as we describe. Uh, he understood that. The high priest uh, didn't understand that. And so even as he said that, uh, it's as if Jesus was saying, well, those are your words. Yes, yes, but those are your words. It's not just a simple yes or no. Um, he looks to this man and he says, you have said so. Uh, but then he says this to further define who he is. Um, if you look down at verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Uh, this acknowledgement that he was seated at the right hand of the Father uh, shows that important, perfect, uh, equal position of the right hand of the throne of the power of God, and he sees himself right there. And now they saw him is in, in their minds, understanding where he was and what... Uh, 
what he saw himself. And you can tell by the response uh, what the high priest did with this and the others uh, as we hear from them. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his robe and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard the blasphemy. What you see here is this. First of all, the tearing of robes, the tearing of robes. This was a signal. Uh, this was a signal of a greatest offense. This, uh, this idea of extreme case of horror. Uh, you've heard something or you've seen something so awful that now you tear your clothes as a symbol. I can't believe this. This is the high priest symbolically tearing his clothes at the words of Jesus and determining that this was blasphemy. It's as if they, they had these uh, two witnesses agreeing on the um, hearing that he's the temple rebuilding in and, and three days, and, and they look at these charges, and it's as if they've set those charges aside, and now they said, we've heard it ourselves. Jesus is, we don't need the witnesses anymore. Those two witnesses, they don't matter because we have heard from uh, Jesus himself that he thinks that he is God. Blasphemy is the defiant irreverence. Uh, It's a, a unique, terrible sin that's intentionally and openly speaking evil. Um, and determined as one of the most extreme forms of sin. That, that what the high priest was accusing Jesus of is the worst possible sin you could do and that he was in no way, shape, or form. Uh, the, the guilt of the other things didn't matter anymore, but that he was guilty and guilty uh, to, be, to be killed, to die for what he has done. As we look at this, um, the last section we get to is just titled Judging the Judge. Uh, you, you realize it's hard sometimes as we read this to uh, remember who Jesus is. He's not just a man. They saw him as just a man. They looked upon him and they said, you know, we're not going to acknowledge him as who he says he is. They keep pushing that away. But now they go about as the 70 or however many of those representatives, now they go about judging the one who is to judge them. Verse 66, what is your judgment? They answered, uh, he deserves death. He deserves death. Look at this. It's interesting. They saw themselves as authoritative. They saw themselves as able to uh, discern what's right and wrong and then to give the judgment or the punishment for what has gone on, death. Amazing thing uh, when men decide upon the Savior. Um, And once again, I'll just remind you that this was not just simply uh, men making a bad decision, but this was uh, the enemy using men and prompting them to do things uh, to try to destroy the plan of God. And once again, I'll tell you this, and God's plan being greater than that, being greater than that, even with the, the enemy's activity, God 
uh, brings about his plan of redemption one step at a time, even allowing uh, sinful men to do what they're going to do. So judging the judge, what is your judgment? He deserves death. And then, uh, this, this is amazing to me. This is so hard for me. In verse 67, it says this, Then they spit in his face and struck him and slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is, that, who is it that struck you? What an amazing thing, right? You, you, you look at God come in the flesh. He's, he's sitting before them. He's standing before them. He, they're with them. They can touch him physically. And their response is now to spit in his face, to slap him, to beat him. And this will, there'll be more of this as it goes on. And, and there's a connection here. Matthew makes a connection that, uh, that, that, that's interesting. It doesn't say that all of them participated, but it, but it has this picture as you put the Gospels together that this was the guards, but most possibly that part of the Sanhedrin, the 70, participated in it as well. Can you imagine religious leaders participating in this and feeling themselves justified to do so? Amazing picture. Uh, one man suggested, as I read, that this, uh, that this spitting and striking and slapping was uh, symbolic. Um, they, they spit in his face to show him as just a common man. Uh, if you see someone of importance and 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 even uh, worse than a common man, and I know that some of us struggle with that in terms of when we see someone who's done something awful, we will label him an animal. We'll label him an animal, and some even worse terms that that are used, and we just say he doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter how you treat him. This is what uh, is pictured in this spitting in one's face. It's interesting in our world today, we have so many images because of phones and what we, we see things that, that are graphic, the, the, the fist fight and this and that, and you look at that, and how could you do that to another human being? Well, uh, this is not just out on the streets. This is in uh, the confines of a home of a religious leader. And all the religious leaders uh, circled around him, and they are a part of the spitting in one's face uh, of deeming Jesus as just a common criminal. As you, as you see the second one, spitting, and then the idea of uh, hitting one. Uh, you all know about, uh, and I don't know why this is, but um, when a young man gets to be in junior high or high school, there's a lot of hitting that goes on, a lot of punching each other and stuff like that. And it's a sense of, uh, you know, if if one person, you know, it, sometimes they even like have, you know, you, you hit me in the shoulder and then I'll hit you in the shoulder and the first one to quit um, is the loser, right? It's one of those things. And, and it's a sign where you're, you're, you're punching and you're saying, I am stronger than you. I'm stronger than you. In this passage, some have suggested that that them hitting Jesus was a sign that he had no power. What are you going to do, fight back? It's interesting, uh, Jesus said, you remember when Jesus was being arrested, Peter comes in with his sword, and what, was, uh, what did Jesus say to Peter? He said, look, I, I could get uh, gazillions, 
a ton, thousands uh, of angels to come at my defense if I needed it. And, and Peter was like, oh, okay. So you don't need my sword, right? I got it, got it. Uh, now they are coming and bringing blows upon him, thinking that somehow them hitting Jesus is showing their power over him. And then lastly, uh, the blindfold and the striking him and saying, who pro- prophesy who hit you? Uh, the idea that he is not a prophet, that he was not one who knew, that he was not one of a authority and knew the plan of God. Um, they come with this. Uh, it's interesting that they uh, their charge against him was blasphemy, and they were doing the very thing that they had charged him against. Um, amazing. What this is a picture of, and and we'll just tie it up with this. This is a, a, a picture of, of the rejection of Jesus. And, and a, the idea that men reject the truth of Christ. When you look at this, it's hard for us to imagine because we're in a church. And to some degree, all of you believe in Jesus here this morning. You believe he's the one. Uh, If you don't, I want to encourage you, uh, now's your time, now's your time to not be like one of these religious leaders who rejected Jesus. But uh, this was the rejection of the truth of Jesus. And I want to tie our time up with just giving you three reasons of why do men reject Jesus? Why do they reject the truth of Him? Uh, Sometimes it's hard for us to fathom it as we see it. I, I, I read another article in the last day um, that was talking about that Jesus didn't exist, that, that there, there's no evidence that Jesus truly existed. And I, I go, why are they trying so hard? Um, it, it's this, you know, every so often these ideas come up and and it's somebody found something new or did something new, and somehow they've got this idea that Jesus really didn't exist, and it's just an imaginary type thing. And I want to tell you, that's ridiculous. He's marked in history. He's marked in the Scripture as something uh, more uh, foundational than any other person in history. And so for us, why is it that men still reject Jesus? And I want to say, these men rejected Jesus in his time. (laughs) They had seen, they had heard, they had spoken to eyewitnesses of what he is in. Why is it that they had rejected him? And maybe this morning, these are the same reasons that you struggle with rejecting Jesus. Or maybe some of your loved ones. The first one is this. Rejecting Jesus is more important because uh, you don't have to admit of past wrong ways. Past wrong ways. These men, uh, these we don't get their ages, but let's just say they were somewhere uh, between 40, 50, 60. These were men. Uh, for them to accept Jesus would be for them to reject all the ways prior but they would have to abandon those ways. They would have to say, I was wrong. Have that admission. And I want to tell you, uh, sometimes that's really hard because we've loved the things that have gone on this far. But I want to tell you this. This is so cool. It's like a fresh start. 
It's like a fresh start. It's, it's as if, even as I talked with the kids, it's going from stumbling in the darkness to walking in the light. It, it's, a, it's different. It, it's a different life. And I want to tell you, it's for you. And it doesn't matter if you're uh, 15 or 85 or, or older. It, it doesn't matter. The, the idea is that we would understand that he is not the one to be rejected. He is the one to be embraced as a Savior. It's an admission, and so it's hard for people uh, to reject the truth. Secondly, um, there can't be two lords. There can't be two lords, and this is hard too, right? Uh, the, the idea is two lords, is either you are Lord of your life, doing whatever you want, or he is Lord of your life, and you now answer to him, and you say, it, I, I've always liked to be in charge. I, I, I like to be in control. Um, I want to tell you, you're not very good at it. Every mess up in your life, uh, when you're in control, goes back to you. And, and this idea that Jesus came to be your Savior without being your Lord, is not, it's not real. It's not real. Jesus came to be your Lord. He saved you of your sins. He brought you into right relation. And now He is the one you answer to. And it's good for you. It's good for you. But I want to tell you, there can't be two lords. And for them, they knew it too. They said, well, we're in charge. We're in charge. We make decisions. In fact, we make decisions for the whole religious community. I want to tell you that the reason they couldn't give it up is because they knew there couldn't be two lords. If Jesus was who he says he was and acknowledged that everything would have been all bets off at that time and they submit to him. And lastly, most importantly, I would even say this, the spiritual blindness of sin. The spiritual blindness of sin. You know what's uh, most difficult to understand? Is that these men, these men thought they were doing right. They thought that the end justified the means. And you say, they thought that it was good for them to frame Jesus and then take him to the cross? Yes. You know why? Because they thought they were preserving their religious life and the lives of those who followed them. They thought this was a good thing. And I want to tell you, how could they be so wrong? Because of spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. When you walk in the dark, guess what? Right seems wrong and wrong seems right. And we, we, we can have examples of this throughout the world right now, right? You have examples of it all the time. And you say, how can someone do that? I want to tell you, it's spiritual blindness. When you walk in the dark, you can't see. I want to tell you that these men walked in the dark and they played into the enemy's hand, but uh, God's will still prevailed. These men, you know what they should have been doing? They should have been singing, how wonderful, how marvelous. That's what they should have been singing. That's what they, they should have seen Jesus, embraced him, and what did they do? They rejected him and sent him to the cross. I want to tell you uh, that Jesus, uh, this whole process, he went through this, that we might have life and life in him. Um, this is a time that we would not reject, but that we would embrace uh, our, our Savior, our Lord.
Please join with me in prayer. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, your word. Uh, God, thank you for all that you're doing and that, um, that I have something to preach because your son has come and he has given his life. And I have your wonderful word that I can share. Uh, God, I, I ask that you would transform your people through this. Uh, continue to do your work in us. We thank you in Jesus' name.